I lost my dongle. Uh oh. I know. It's frightening. I see you're in your office still, Dustin. I thought you were on a row. Are you back already? Yeah, I'm back. That was a quickie. Yeah. Yeah. I got back Friday afternoon, actually. Might uh, there be another break this summer? Or is that all for you? Uh, there might be. I, well, actually, there will be. Uh, in August, there, there are several concerts around the state that I want to check out. So I'm going to be zipping around for those. Sweet. Yeah. And, and it's actually kind of crazy. Um, and it, and it's funny because there's like two sets of them, like in, in Fargo, uh, you got Buck Cherry and Corey Taylor on two different nights, the same week. And then up in Minot, they're doing this, Dak Jam thing where they got a bunch of 90s bands like Goo Goo Dolls and Gin Blossoms and stuff like that. Um, and But they're all kind of in the same week. And and it's kind of like, okay, which one do you want to go see today type of deal? And, you know, do, do I, you know, I, I've even thought, okay, maybe I could jump on the Amtrak and, and uh, <laughs> sleep while going between the towns and go, just jump concert to concert like that but uh yeah yeah there's there's all sorts of stuff going on I, apparently the these bands that, that have not been touring are taking all the small town requests that they can right now uh because apparently the big cities aren't as conducive yet to to having them play so you get to see some bands that were Top line 25 years ago uh, or 20 years ago in a bar setting, which is, you know, kind of a neat thing. I, I think a lot of them are outside, like in the parking lots and stuff, but uh, that's kind of what I'm going to plan to do. That sounds pretty fun. That's awesome. Well, hopefully we can get some music reviews from you, Dustin, later yeah. in the summer. Back in, uh, back in like 2012, 2013, there was a, uh, the what's now the strawberry bar in Mandan was set up to do these kind of things. And a guy named Corey was running the show and he was bringing in all sorts of bands that were cross country and, and he'd get them on their off days while they were going through. And so like there was a three month period where I went to like 17 concerts or something like that. It was crazy. And seeing them in that setting could be cool. Um, mm -hmm. It might be sad, but it might be awesome. You don't yeah. know until you show up. Yeah, I, I mean, it's awesome. Usually, those small venues are the bomb. Yeah, they're usually it better. It, it depends on the acoustics and the band where yeah, the band is at in their career, how long they've been on the road, the sound sound guy or girl, whoever's doing their board. <sighs> Yeah, yeah, that sounds cool. I'm excited for you. Um, I'm gonna see if I can figure out when those dates are, and might uh, depending on the band, might want to go up and see one of these little shows. That sounds pretty cool. You can mm -hmm. learn a lot from a small show. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember uh, one of the bands that came through in Mandan was uh, Saliva. Like within the year after Josie Scott had left the band, and the new kid was singing for them, and it was just an absolute you know, cluster because 
he was just all he was doing was drinking straight <laughs> out of the the whiskey bottle trying to impress people and we were like uh he doesn't even know the words of these songs and he's the singer of the band <laughs> and he's drinking his ass off <laughs> and there was only like maybe 35 people in the audience and it was that that was sad because you know 22 years ago saliva was about as big as you could get in the rock world but now not so much <laughs> Yeah, yikes. Well, welcome everyone to the No Name. It's fun. It was so hot. It's um, a we struggle on my end, too. Dustin, do I sound okay to you? You're okay, but Ryan is is roboting in and out. Yeah. <laughs> Ryan, you're roboting. We didn't even fully catch, assuming I heard the same thing as Dustin, the No Name podcast. Sort of heard No Name. <laughs> so, welcome to the No Name podcast. <laughs> Where technology is not always our friend. Well, I'm guessing Ryan was inviting uh, check-in thoughts based on the tenor of his voice, even though I couldn't understand him. Probably. <laughs> Sorry, Ryan. I don't mean to laugh at your expense. Um, this is what happened to me during the Renaissance Zone meeting this week. I, 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 was, I had to park in Lewiston, Montana on Thursday afternoon at 3 o'clock to uh, be able to have a decent signal. And I, everything was working fine until it got time to vote. And then all of a sudden, the, the app on my phone would crash because my phone would overheat at just that moment. Oh, no. And it, and it happened twice. <laughs> and there were two votes. And I was able to get it to work later in the call so I could make some statements. And, and oddly enough, one of those statements that I made uh, uh, ended up being a KFYR news story for, with no background at all. It was just, you know. They use my quote and they're like, yeah, they're going to do this. And I'm like, uh, uh, yeah, I said it would be a good idea. I, I'm not sure that this is quite yet city policy, but apparently, <laughs> according to KFYR, I, I just set city policy. So <laughs> I saw that and I was like <laughs> reading between the lines a little bit, like trying to figure out like what really happened. And I just was like, it was kind of like one of those times. It was like they made a whole article out of like a really small nugget and it like, sure, it could be an intriguing nugget, but I kind of feel like it has to develop and mature and like more. Also, there's just so much, so many good ideas that the powers that be never let take off the ground. So, you know, it's like, let's not jump the gun on. Uh, I mean, if we, if we reported out every time somebody had a good idea, then we'd have a lot, we'd have a lot of disappointment. So I thought that was kind of funny um, seeing you post about that. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, <clears throat> the committee, the Renaissance Zone Committee is all about giving out tax breaks to people. And I'm, I, I've, i you know, been very selective on where I vote no on those things. Um, but on the other hand, I'm much more in favor of reducing regulation and helping people, got, helping business owners and developers guide themselves get guided through the regulations than i am on giving the tax break you know so the city puts up all these hurdles for these developers like design you know we act as the design review committee so anything that happens in a building capacity in downtown bismarck comes through us now i have a policy i vote yes on every single design review thing uh because I, I don't believe that the city should be in charge of telling people how their buildings should look. So just out of 
principle that that I don't think the city should have the power. I vote yes on everything that the the property owner wants. Uh, but that's our secondary role. The, the primary role is is uh, with the Renaissance Zone uh, tax abatement uh, provisions, and in that area. You know, we, we do tend to give out way too many tax breaks, um, and I vote no on the ones that don't make much sense, but some of them do, and some of them I let slide because there's a, a better ROI than on other things. Yeah, see, I think we have our own sort of parallel happenings in Mandan, which maybe you're well aware of, mm -hmm. where sometimes navigating the approval process really simply becomes a navigating the personalities and like that's not really the point um some kind of consistency predictability and what you're told on paper should you know that matching what you can expect realistically would be nice yeah, Mandan operates a lot more like a small town. I, I know a little bit of the background of the site selection for the new high school. Uh, I know one person who was involved in the potential site that did not get selected, and he's pretty upset at what's going on, and, and he's claiming there's some, some favoritism going on there. But, uh, yeah, you know, these this is – this is just, it all just goes into the why, you know, on principle, government should not be able to pick winners and losers. So if you don't, if you don't give government the power to play favorites, then you have a lot less chance of people getting uh, the short end of the stick because they don't know the right people. Yeah, I hear that. And um, <laughs> the way I feel about some of the the school board situation is just that, well, since it's uh, the silver lining for me, it's like, well, that's not my problem. It's not my monkeys or circus if um, there's some unfairness. And not that I, you know, obviously I would always like to uh, do what I can for fairness. So I'm not trying to like wash my hands of it, but I just kind of chuckled to myself because I'm like, oh, cool. So people are getting pushback for the decisions, but it's not my problem. <laughs> Yeah. So Ryan, is it working yet? It was weird. I had a signal. Ryan, you could call in on your phone. Maybe now, I don't know where you lost me. And I, um, I am. Because uh, Ryan, you're quite you inconsistent now still. Um, and so maybe dialing via phone might be more more reliable. But yeah, we heard very little of what you said and we just started talking about other things. Blame. Then one more time, folks, and I'll come in with my phone signal and see if that helps. Talks amongst yourselves. We're okay. right back. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, yeah, so today I, was, I had a couple of things I wanted us to touch base on. So as you already know, I'd like to talk about uh, the term limit situation and mm -hmm. it's a little bit of story time. You can shed light on uh, to the extent that you are able and have permission to, <laughs> um, how the situation came to be, what your connection is with it. Um, and then it would be, uh, I think it'd be good to touch base um, just a little bit about the August 12th chamber event. 
that I'll be a panelist at, um, kind of get the wheels in motion. I mean, we've obviously already touched base on it and how to think about it, but that's something I think worth mentioning. Um, I definitely would like to be extremely prepared. So mm -hmm. I, will be I will definitely be doing my homework and I will also uh, be getting some feedback from you. But I, I just want to feel like, since I've been warned that um, it may not be so friendly, I feel like I just have to be the most <laughs> pr prepared person on that stage. Now, now, why would you think it wouldn't be friendly when it's their measure? <laughs> well, okay, so the guy, and the guy said that um, he actually hoped that the discussion would be broad and not focused exclusively on the newer measure. So I will, I mean, I, then I will be prepared for a broad discussion, um, but I will also be prepared to see how, you know, the current situation feeds into the bigger issue of constitutional measure reform and, and, and measures that have passed and haven't passed and that, that sort of bigger picture pattern, both what the people in North Dakota are trying to accomplish and what, how legislators and other stakeholders are trying to prevent people, the people of North Dakota from exercising their own governance. Yeah, yeah. I, th I think that, you know, it, it should be decent, though. It, it looks like the, they are stacking the deck a little bit. Um, the the big thing to remember with them is that um, they 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 think that they are the purveyors of neutrality. I, I remember back in 2012 on the initiated measure to eliminate property taxes. I ended up being the uh, the neutral. Uh, party in that situation and uh when when we had our big uh debate between the pros and con side of it uh here in bismarck steve bakken helped me uh 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 mc it and and keep it going and we managed to piss both sides off because i ended up doing real-time live action fact checking on both sides and so neither one of neither side really liked what I had to say, but you know it was all historical based and all factual because both sides like to ex exaggerate pretty severely. And so being prepared to call out the BS is is important in all of this. I like um, I like what you're bringing up because that is actually somewhat of a natural segue into talking more about. Um, the term limit measure that um, we'll be gathering signatures soon. Is, is that, is that where, what stage are we at? Sorry, before I launch into this, what stage is that at? It has yet to be approved by the Secretary of State and AG. And I know, I know some things behind the scenes that I don't want to talk about until some form of the language has been approved. But I can say that there were two versions of the language. One which got submitted and one that I thought would be the more appropriate version. Um, and so uh, until we kind of find out what actually got approved, I'm gonna hold off on, on discussing those differences because 
the 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 difficulty is that I think that they're kind of setting themselves up for the same problem the measure three people had, which is a court challenge after they go spend a bunch of money uh, gathering signatures because I, you know, I do not trust Al Jagger's office. Well, I don't, I, I trust the people in his office. I don't trust him to be a uh, unbiased type person on these type of things. And I could see a situation where the people that are obviously against this measure would let them go get their signatures, let them spend a quarter million dollars doing it, let them run around the state, and then all of a sudden somebody will come out of the woodwork and sue them saying, oh, you can't do it this way. It has to be this other way. Or, or this this clause can't be in the Constitution. It, has, it can only be in the enabling language of the measure and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. I see what so, you're saying. So, so I I do foresee a setup job here, and and you know, so I I I don't necessarily want to. On the one hand, it would if they're going to do it, it would be good to ha- be done early ra- rather than late. But on the other, it's like they got to learn their own lesson. <laughs> well, have you you? Te- I'm assuming then that you've warned them of this, and yes, they're yeah. okay. I. Uh, People, people would be well suited to believe that that warning comes from a real place. But um, yeah, okay. So the reason I thought it was a segue is because I feel like I'm going to end up making nobody happy when it comes to the term limit debate. But that's fine. I'm just gonna. Everyone's got to get over it because I really don't want to take a side. I find the issue extremely interesting, and I find on principle. It an excellent thing for North Dakotans to make a determination about. You know, this is exactly what it's about. Uh, people deciding how their democratic republic is going to function. And um, so I think it's just the kind of topic that is ripe for meaningful debate. And I know that, I mean, some people will disagree with me. They'll say, no, it's this big thing happening around the nation outside of North Dakota. And blah, blah, blah. Like, I mean, yes, of course there is a bigger term limits movement that has, from what I can tell, mixed results as to whether or not it's doing good. Um, depending on who, how you define that good though. Um, I get that, but also there is something sort of uniquely North Dakotan culture to come together and talk about issues like this in our own governance. And I've just never lived any place that had that kind of thing going on. So I can't help but feel like there is a uniquely North Dakotan side to all of it. And I I find the term limits maybe a little constrained as they're currently described. And so I, I you know I'm encountering a lot of people who are like, okay, I'm not, I'm open to the idea, but I don't know that only two terms for a legislator is really a good number to, you know, to limit at. Um, so I find those discussions interesting, but I know that I, I'll be probably pretty non-committal <laughs> and I don't really want it even to be about my commitment anyways. Um, I want to help other people navigate this with a lot of really well-rounded accuracy. And I don't want anybody to only hear one side of the argument because I think that's a missed opportunity um, for North Dakotans to think, think really seriously about their own governance. Um, so yeah, so talking about that with, with 
to the extent that you can. Yeah, I totally respect needing to be quiet about some aspects of it. But um, hey, Ryan, are you now? Let's let's. Can you talk now? We can see how you sound. Perhaps not. I see a little phone symbol next to your name. So. Yeah. He's probably on the phone and can't figure out how to unmute himself on the phone. <laughs> so, so do you have any tips for him if that's his issue? Um, gosh, I, I didn't really run into that issue because oh, I just, okay. I would just mute. Okay. I would just mute and unmute from my phone's. Oh yeah. Like, like what's it called? It's own, or whatever? Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, so I don't know, but I guess, okay. So I'm just curious. Are you, are, are you, you said something before and I wasn't exactly sure what you meant. Um, are you officially, you're officially affiliated with this measure? And if so, in what capacity? No, I'm not officially affiliated with it. I did, I did some background advising work with some of the folks, but officially I'm not involved. Um, you know, and, and one of the things you get into the language of it, um, I, I wanted to point out, last, remember last September when we did our polling on measure two, uh, one of the questions on there was without any description of what the term limits look like, do you support term limits? Uh, a com between the strongly and somewhat support, it was above 70%. So we know that they are starting from a pretty good spot to get something going and then it it's going to depend on the opposition's ability to make the the case that eight and eight is not the uh, appropriate uh uh numbers to use i i was advocating for uh at least on the legislative level 16 any way you want it so you could do eight and eight or you could do 16 in one chamber or you could do 12 in one chamber and four in another or, or whatever. Um, because in my view, you know, with eight years by the, that gives you four sessions. That's just when you're about getting to the point of being influential, if you're ever going to have influence, but then also at 16 years, you know, if you haven't gotten anything substantive done, you're probably not going to in your life. So to me, that's kind of the, the, uh, the reasoning there, um, and, you know, on top of that, uh, it would have allowed for some of the legislators and former legislators who signed on to the measure to be less prone to attack from, from certain people for having already been there past the eight years. <laughs> yeah, I like, I like your reasoning with the 16 years. I think that that would address some of my concerns because I feel like people really, it takes so long to be good at something that tricky. And it's not just that, it's like what serving is really like, what session is truly like, how overwhelming and confusing it is and how there's people who have a lot of strengths, but their first term, they're just real quiet because they're like, what the hell? Like They're just trying to like get used to the rhythm of everything and all the bills they have to vote on that aren't what they seem and how there's a bunch of bills where they're not necessarily being told how to vote because there's not really it's not you know picking up steam it doesn't have momentum and so then they have to try to decide I, it just seems to me like 
it's overwhelming work and the way it's structured isn't exactly to make it super easy to navigate as a newbie. And so I feel like um, the second term is probably where a person can really actually start to have some momentum um, and get how things work and try a few things. And then if that's it, if it's over after that point, I'm like, huh, you know, I don't know. Maybe that third term is where that person, um, you know, they got past the newbie stage. They got into the first, their first, um, it's, it's not, just, I'm, I'm being confusing because obviously it's two sessions per term. So I'm kind of oversimplifying things, but um, yeah, I just think it takes time to be good at a thing. and the 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 way people develop skills is it's like I mean when I think about some of the skills I've developed I just feel like I was terrible for so long and then I hit this sweet spot and just blue and you know you do need a comfortable amount of time to even get there and so we might end up like clipping some people's wings um, but I take your point that um, if you're in there that long and you haven't done much and that's not, not going to change. So it's like, you know, you, you got your turn. <laughs> let's, let's have someone else have their turn. And I am very interested in different people getting their own turns, like having, um, I think it can be really exciting. Um, I think that institutions can be more responsive to a changing environment with some injection of new perspective. And, and so some limits on terms seems like there's potential there. Um, although I, st I remain concerned about the risk of special the revolving door of special interest kind of situation if term limits are um, too constrained. And so these are the, yeah, these are the considerations that I'm um, thinking about as I reason through the proposal. Yeah, the, uh, the you know, it, generally speaking, it's frowned upon for a rookie in their first session to bring very much in as far as sponsor, prime sponsoring bills. Uh, the exception would be where they are considered to be an expert or where they were already a county commissioner for some time working on an issue, maybe working with legislators on it, and they got in there and, you know, they got to take the reins. Um, there's some uh, leeway given in those situations, but first timers who come in with a bunch of bills are, you know, usually quite disappointed because first they don't know the process. And second, nobody takes them seriously unless they were already working on it at some level prior. Uh, the, the issue of the special interests and the bureaucrats taking over because of term limits, I think that is actually an overblown concern in North Dakota because that's already who is in charge of writing all of this stuff anyway. Um, there are very few bills brought that, that, that leadership supports that aren't already uh, micromanaged by either the special interests or by the government employee bureaucrats themselves to begin with. So term limits not will not necessarily increase that problem. It will However, uh, increase the naivete factor of the legislators who don't understand where some of this stuff is coming from. Uh, so that will be 
the part of that whole scenario that that is changed but where most of the you know uh successful legislation starts at really is not going to change at all so is it kind of like um how do i ask this um are you saying that we already fully deal with that like or that i mean basically we are already so owned by special interests is that basically the argument and if so then should we be finding a way to push back on that specifically and not entangle that issue with term limits since term limits isn't going to necessarily worsen a situation that is already a brewing or like if we also i'm just wondering if we had term limits would it make us more trapped in special interests um in bureaucracies controlling everything or is that just is that a lack of creativity to assume that like am i like is there something people making this argument are missing about the alternatives out there i i think that when you have a part-time legislature you you're only you are maxed out and there's there is a pretty low ceiling on how much legislators themselves can control things um because the if you look if there's a thousand bills brought in in a session maybe 300 of those are legislators coming up with the ideas themselves and very few of those survive the vast majority of bills so so if 30 percent are from the legislators themselves uh, I would say 50% are from agencies, bureaucrats, political subdivisions, higher ed, uh, things that the system itself bringing in legislation. Uh, that is the bulk of, of what we see is the system itself changing the rules on how it itself operates. And then that remaining 20% is coming in from your special interest groups. Um, you know, big oil or, or some, you know, uh, public employees union or, or whatever you, either way you want to go. Uh, so, I mean, right now the, the government in many ways sets its own rules through the bureaucracy. The, the, the legislators are really there just to give a yes or no rubber stamp on a lot of this stuff. Uh, it, I mean, it's just like at a school board meeting, School board members don't bring their own agenda. Uh, typically, the the uh, administrator or the superintendent who's running the meeting brings the agenda, and the chairman runs the meeting. And the meeting is entirely based on the school board saying yes or no to what the administrator brings to the table. Uh, so it's very similar in that way. Um, legislators. <laughs> in their own minds have more power than they really do. And um, in the minds of people in the public, individual legislators are viewed as having some sort of power that they don't have. Uh, some of them, some legislators, when they get to a point of leadership are able to use their personality and ego to push their particular issues like Al Carlson, did this 
extremely well, whether you agreed with him or not, he was good at it, <laughs> but that those are few and far between. So, um, you know, the, the impact that term limits will have is I think marginal on, on that issue. And secondly, because we've had so much turnover. I mean, since I've been involved in the 2007 session, I, I think we've 40% of the legislature has turned over in that 13, 14 year span. So, uh, you know, we kind of already have a lot of that happening already. And, and that's why I am pretty sure that it, it's negligible how much worse that dynamic will get um, if we have more forced turnover. I see. Ryan, any chance you're in a better situation now? Yeah, let's third time's a charm. How's it sounding now, guys? Good. Good. Excellent. My apologies again. I reset the internet. I think we're good to go now. Uh, great conversation so far. I have been able to listen to, to most of the last 20 minutes or so that I've been struggling to connect. Um, I could always hear you guys. I just couldn't speak to you. So um, I have a couple of background questions I'll ask here at the end of, of this, but um, I guess I'm inclined to agree with Dustin as far as the, what the changes could be. I think the special interests and in entrenched bureaucracies um, already are writing most of the laws. So if we remove some um, opportunities for incumbents to continue to serve, I, I don't think the uh, institutional knowledge is going to um, uh, be lessened to the extent that there's going to be a power shift, the power still shifted in one direction towards the bureaucrats and the lobbyists. What I do think um, could be a counter argument to that idea would be if we're um, within the co cohort of people that are elected, if they are, are culled on a regular basis, um, there may be more shifting dynamics within that cohort to allow for different power sources, power centers to emerge. And from that, the dynamic could change just because you have a little bit greater turnover more often. And so you could get people in there that um, maybe recognize exactly what Dustin laid out and want to do something about it or want to push back and so organize against lobbying um, or the bureaucrats uh, that write most of the laws um, are the bills that, that come before them. And so there's a potential there. So my argument for term limits, and I haven't seen the language, so maybe I'm not in favor of this particular initiative, but the general argument in front for it would be, this would be one step towards um, a, a better process, but we'd have to continue to tweak at the edges. So Dustin alluded to it a little bit there, but part-time part legislators um, are already behind the eight ball when it comes to getting something done um, in, during their term um, and during their um, career as a politician. So I think you just, you start with term limits and then the second aspect is you look towards a full-time legislature. So not only do you have to have people coming, coming and going, but the, these people have to be willing to leave their career behind for a little bit to do the service that um, they've been elected to do. And I think once you have a buy-in where it's like, this is actually my job, I'm getting paid hopefully well by the state. I have um, security uh, and I'm gonna be in Bismarck or wherever for you know, at least two years, maybe more. Uh, now I'm gonna get down to business and we can start to um, really change the power, power dynamics. So I, I would you know, have to see the 
the language to know whether I support this particular effort. But I think in general, it's a good step forward. And then, you know, once you do full-time legislature, maybe then you start thinking about uh, sortition or some other way to um, truly <laughs> draw from the people and, uh, and really mix things up as far as ideas and power structures. And um, I don't know how you attack, you know, the, the, the power that the lobbyists have. And, um, and I wonder how, you know, I think that there is, um, so that's an open question. How do you lessen the power of lobbyists? I don't know. That's a tough one. And then the second idea would be, I, I'd like some more discussion on would be the power of the bureaucrats. Yes, they do have it. Certain ones certainly are powerful, um, but other ones have no power. <laughs> some of the other bureaucrats are just, uh, no one listens to them. They don't get anything they want. And, uh, and sometimes they're shut up or they're told to not talk in public because um, that's how much power they don't have. So I think um, a power shift would be in order for the bureaucrats or the people within state government to, to allow everyone an equal voice or opportunity to, to impact public policy versus where now it seems it's a select few do everything almost. Um, but with that, Dustin, I have a specific question. Is Paul Jacob uh, involved in this effort? Paul Jacob, uh, former guest of the No Name podcast. Yes, he is. So he's the, the organizing force behind this one? Yeah, he and, and U.S. term limits are the, the, the people with the money behind this. Cool. I revisited but, that episode. Yeah, because I, I had a feeling. I was like, hmm, I sense a bit of Paul Jacobs here. <laughs> and what did you what did you um, learn from revisiting that episode? Because I remember uh, we did we did touch on term limits towards the end, I think, of that conversation. Yeah, we did touch on it. Um, I asked him a particular question where I wanted him to kind of elaborate the argument against the argument that I hear so often from political scientists that it just term limits term turn uh everything into a revolving door for lobbyists um he he brought up something that was just interesting that i really i'd kind of forgotten he talked about and he was and it, it's not directly relevant what we're talking about but it just was interesting to reflect upon a little bit and that is how the the status quo of a lack of term limits actually really ends up with this kind of stagnant situation that a bunch of people run unopposed because they have the status quo biases in their right. favor. Um, and that it just like, the, oh, the, and this is not true of North Dakota, but um, so it's not directly relevant to us, but it's just interesting observation that he had that, you know, there are a lot of communities where if you're running unopposed, like basically you're the only person to get your paperwork in on, on that whatever timeline, um, you don't even show up on the ballot. So you just, you know, there's no, there's not even, there's no, when you think about it that way, there's not even a write-in process there. So there really is no ability to challenge. And I know that there's some people who would push back at him and say, uh, well, actually it makes me think of what Rob Port said uh, to me when Dustin and I were talking to him about uh, measure two from the last election. Um, when I, you know, mentioning it's really hard to get people to run. And I mentioned a lot of legislators run unopposed. He was like, whose fault is that? Well, whose fault is that? And I was just thinking, oh boy, that's a whole other podcast. And there's a lot to say there, but it's clear to me that Paul Jacobs like didn't feel the need to explain it, just kind of thought it speaks for itself. But that there are reasons why people get entrenched 
and nobody runs against them. I mean, people need to, you, most people need to feel some actual hope to win. <laughs> um, people know that open seats are, you know, much easier than incumbent held seats. And there are lots of psychological, sociological and economic pressures that keep people from running and that favors the status quo, that favors the incumbent. And so um, to just think of the fact that term limits basically they change the ecosystem, like the political ecosystem, if that makes sense, um, where you just can't coast as an incumbent in the same way. Um, and he brought up that term limits means there's more spending on political races. And he said that that is a proxy for competition. And, you know, I, I hear him there, although I, I still have concerns about um, how much spending there is in campaigns. And I just think that we're at a ridiculous point. I mean, yes, more candidates should be more spending. And if you're a decent candidate, you should be able to fundraise enough for some outreach. But obviously, um, there are very, very, very expensive campaigns that leave me scratching my head. They should not be that expensive. So that's a tricky one for me. But yeah, that's, um, and I don't think I finished listening, re-listening to the episode in its entirety um, yet. So maybe there's other interesting things he said that I um, uh, haven't caught up on yet. But it was just kind of a neat connection between one of our earlier episodes. Um, and I did, I think I shared it on the, Facebook page that I made as a place to share the podcasts on occasion. So I would actually share it more often. I just don't like being on Facebook that much. But um, I think that I know that a couple of our episodes that I've shared on Facebook have gotten a listen or two because I've got I've had people just privately reach out to say they agree or disagree like with what uh, <laughs> we've discussed. So hey, that's a good that's thing. Nice. Um, yeah, like I don't. Thing. I had one person reach out and said that they think that the hydrogen um energy stuff that um Christiana and I listened to Dustin talk about the other week uh, quite a bit and um because he's the only one who knows about it um he this person told me that he thought it was a boondoggle so I thought that was interesting so anyways a little social media um as much as I resent it has helped us reach a few more listeners yeah that's interesting well you brought up a lot of things I'd like to respond to um Ellie um maybe we should have a, a a podcast on the hydrogen idea because so I think it's a, an interesting, an interesting topic. Um, and I missed that episode. I think I was somewhere, somewhere doing something. Um, but yeah, I think that that's um, due for more discussion because they've got more things uh, on the on their roadmap uh, that are going to be uh, pretty big stuff for North Dakota. So I think it's something we'll be talking about. And then for um, the idea of term limits being like a, an ecosystem cleanser, I think that's what they are. Um, you just re, you are requiring a, a certain amount of turnover per per cycle, uh, which you know you should cleanse um, the process to a degree. Obviously, we don't that it's um, it's a theoretical cleanse. <laughs> when you get down to the practical, uh, maybe it's not doing uh, what you want it to do because of the individuals or the power structures and the localities that it affects. So, uh, you know, I think one of the things they're going to say when this, if this becomes a thing is that, oh, don't vote for it, uh, you mostly Republican voters of North Dakota, because this is just a ploy by the Democrats uh, to get back power. And it's only going to help Democrats because they don't uh, have any really good candidates um, for the most part. And it's going to pick off all of our good Republican candidates. And this is just like a sneaky way to, to rig the game for them, um, which uh, potentially could be the case in the beginning. 
um, depending on who's caught up in, in the, the, the details of the term limits, which I don't know, sadly, haven't read that yet. Um, so that could be one of the talking points, but this is just a, a partisan issue again. Um, I know that's kind of typically where these things go is that we make it into a partisan issue right away. And then the other aspect is um, what Rob Port was talking about, which is well, why don't people run? Uh, because they don't want to, <laughs> Rob. <laughs> Who wants to run for office? That seems like... Um, and, and they might the, want to serve. People. That's I think the key there is that plenty of people... They might want to serve, but they serve. don't want to run. Because <laughs> running sucks, okay? Running does suck, sucks. exactly. Like, yeah. The, the one thing that the term limits are going to do is they're going to make a much more uh, realistic and official grooming process. Uh North Dakota has never, North Dakota politics have never really had a grooming process. And when you have a, a, an expiration date on how long someone can serve, it necessitates for uh, political powers and parties and movements to actually have a pipeline groomed. And, and I think that that will allow for even though the the races themselves become more expensive that will allow for more competition because you will have people who will have been set up to succeed a little bit easier it'll make it so that you know we'll have more people who are put into city commission seats at, uh, as a means of getting them ready to, for the jump. So many people who just all of a sudden they want to jump in the legislature. They have no background on anything. They don't know any local stuff other than maybe they had some disagreement with their county about, you know, uh, uh, right of way issue. Like that's that's the extent of their <laughs> nuts and bolts experience with government. And those are the people that are the end up deer in the headlights when they get there. And so if there's more of a if there's more value on creating a pipeline and creating a, a minor league system and a major league system, um, you, you will end up with better people. You will end up with a more diverse number of people and you will end up with uh, people who are more prepared and, and it will also allow for more entities and, and groups to create their own pipelines. And so right. you will end up having I believe a much more, it, it, it's going to take, I mean, decades. I mean, it, they're not going to realize that they need to do this for quite some time, but, you know, 20, 30 years out, uh, I think you'll see better people and better product. Um, you know, the problem right now is that it, when you're running for office, um, you know, we always say that the people that should be in office are too busy raising kids and, and growing businesses. And, right. um, and so we get everybody else. And, uh, you know, at some point we got to realize that we need to get those people who should be in office into the pipeline uh, earlier because they're, they're going to have more knowledge base. And, um, and, and oftentimes the people that don't want to run are the ones that should. Yep, exactly. Well, I love this idea of a pipeline slash um, like a, just a minor league system, a way for people you know, to get groomed into the process. So one of my criticisms of the Democrats, uh, and, and potentially this goes to the Republicans as well, is that if you uh, try to participate, you have this, you're met with um, 
uh, indifference and a, a, a barrage of, of bureaucratic hurdles in the beginning. And it's confusing and it doesn't make you feel welcome. So if there was um, this kind of edict that says, well, well we need to get um, new candidates up every so often. And so it motivates the party, the local parties here to have, to have a real outreach for new members. And it's not only just like we want to grow the member base so you'll vote for us, but we want to grow the member base so you can run for us because this is hugely important. We have to continue to restock uh, the coffers every so often because um, you know the people that make it to the top need to be cycled out very so uh, every so often. So if it creates this um, incentive for the political powers to uh, recruit and reach out to people that ought to be running, like Dustin talked about, the ones that should be running but don't run because they got other stuff happening. Uh, now, the, now there's an incentive to reach out to those folks and be like, hey, actually, why don't you do this? This would be a great use of your talents. And, um, you know, we're going to make it real easy for you. we got a good pipeline here. Um, we can bring you along slowly. And then when it's time to run, you'll be ready and you can win. And uh, that's a great pitch to make to people. Plus, it gets people involved in the process in a way that um, I don't think is available right now. And uh, now it's so much about who you know and how much money you got and all the other factors that, you know, people that Dustin were talking about that should be running, they're just turned off by that. They have other opportunities and it just doesn't, it's not appealing to them. Now we can make it appealing to them with the term limits. If the, you know, like Dustin said, it might take 10 years to get the incentives realigned uh, amongst the powers that be, but that would be great. It's a great way to kind of incorporate people into the process to, so they can participate in a meaningful way uh, that kind of speaks to their purpose in life and their values. And um, Ryan, you know, Ryan, I'm tempted to say, we should uh, have your dad on the phone on, on a call and like fuss at him a little <laughs> because like, isn't he a part of the generation that failed to secure the pipeline for um, he, center left at progressive candidates? Well, he was the, he was the failed candidate for what I'm speaking about right now, actually, Ellie. Oh, he, he didn't maybe, have a pipeline either. He, um, he, he was up for the job for uh, the Dem. Um, what's whatever the top position of the Dem executive director of the yes, Dem correct. NPO in '98, uh, I think '96 or '98, and uh, he said he, he had he had the job, and then he said something to them, and they gave it to somebody else. He's he's basically said that we'd probably have to have him on it to tell the story, um, but basically he said if you want me to be a yes man to your to the executive board, I'm not that I'm not that candidate. You should look somewhere else. And they're like, okay. We're gonna look somewhere else, and that was that was the end of his political career with the Dem NPO. In '98, that was that was when Team Dakota was really in charge of the direction of the party, and and if you weren't a yes man to those three, you you weren't there. Yeah, but who do you remember who got the executive director job in '98 then? By any chance? I'm very. Curious. I don't. <sighs> It's so, that's very interesting to me. I think- So he would, um, he, mm -hmm. it's, yeah, well, I'm just going to say he's about to retire from his position. So he would be willing to, to come on the dish. podcast, I bet with, within, within a month or so and dish now that he doesn't have any, there's no blowback from his organization. Yeah, um, your dad's going to spill all the tea. <laughs> <laughs> but, and we'll, we'll, we'll just like- I, I was just going to make some joke about like Kermit and T. We could get pretty silly with it. But um, so that's really interesting. I think I have heard that. Yeah, those those former uh, congresspersons are a big source of the lack of lineage uh, and, and this sort of grooming process that you're talking about. 
on the um, Dem and PL side of things. I think like that you said some words in your hypothetical for future vision uh, where there is a pipeline and there are term limits where you said, we'll make it easy for you. Like that, like there is so little making it easy for you that happens. And um, it's so difficult. And it's also just normalized now. But people don't really talk about it that openly. So, you know, only a few people in my life have ever been like really honest about how crappy it is to run for office. Um, Waylon Hedegaard is one of them. Most people, they want you to run so badly that they don't really tell you the truth. And um, that I think is really problematic and it makes me really uncomfortable. And I actually on a um, I'm a board member of the Women's Network and on a call uh, several weeks ago, I was just like, I have, I'm really uncomfortable actually asking other women to run right now, which as an organization, we do all the time. Like we actually are some of the makeup pipeline um, on the women's side of things. And and for, we're nonpartisan, so it is for any party, um, but we train women to run for office and stuff like that. And I just told them of my deep ambivalence about that because it is so unpleasant and difficult and there is so little support or structure out there to help you. So I kind of can't in good conscience um, just tell people to do it. And, and so I, a lot of my board members were really, I mean, all of them actually were really uh, sympathetic and our executive director was really, they were really open to the issue I cited. And they started talking about how to connect women with resources within each other while they're running. Like basically we're, we're scrambling to make, to, to do more work on creating some kind of pipeline or support infrastructure or whatever, so that women even can without losing their minds. Um, it's so, it's really bad. It's, there's really a strong lack of support. And I just, I honestly don't even know what to do about it because it seems like it's so dramatic. It's not just a matter of pouring a little time to this or a little money into that or whatever. It's, I mean, there's just such a, the infrastructure has collapsed. And so building up from a collapse is challenging. And, and yeah. on, on, on that side of things, what's interesting is that, you know, from my perspective, the Republican women's groups are far more active and effective at grassroots motivation than the general Republican groups. Um, you know, you've got BARC, which is the Bismarck Area Republican Committee. You might have maybe 60 people show up to their lunch, but the Republican women's dinners get like 300. So uh, from from what I've seen on the Republican side, it's the, the women have the, the, the a monopoly on the, the grassroots activism, but not necessarily it, that doesn't necessarily translate into candidates and, and women candidates getting elected. But they they certainly are uh, a major force in the actual activism. That's really interesting because I once tried to find out, like basically, kind of how the the volunteer labor and stuff like that played out by gender in the Republican Party, and I asked someone who, based on their personal observations actually thought it was pretty fairly distributed. And I wasn't sure what to think of that. I was just like, wow, because I mean, 
on on the progressive side of things, yeah, women do a lot more labor in a lot of ways when it comes to just providing the support and uh, making fundraisers successful and like all kinds of stuff. Um, but I, I would say it's yeah. three to one women. Uh, men cut checks. Women do the the actual you know bake sale stuff and and putting on the dinners, the the Lincoln Day dinners that. that you know, raise money and have raffles. It's generally the Republican women in charge of those fundraising efforts at the low level. And then the men go out and, you know, ask for $10,000 checks. That's <laughs> but... what I was wondering. I kind of thought that would be the case. And my friend threw me for a loop with their, their you know, and so I, it might be possible that my friend is from a very specific clique and like, it's a little more balanced in that clique, if that makes sense. Yeah. I don't know that, um, because yeah, that's kind of what I expected, and you know, it, it, it is. I think that's true across across a lot of contexts, and it's not ideological or not you know dependent on ideology. Um, so it's interesting to me. Anything that transcends ideology is pretty interesting to me. Um, yeah, I mean, we have a thing or two to learn from these Republican women's orgs, and I know that the Women's Network Executive Director does have a good relationship with one or more, uh, you know, leaders or sort of you know. Uh, super duper volunteers in these Republican women's organizations because, I mean, they send people to our ready to run training too, which is a good thing. I think it's really good for us to have those kinds of cross-partisan interactions in their own right. Um, but it also, you know, de demonstrates the legitimacy of the Women's Network. It is not an arm of any political party. It is about women. So I think it's wonderful when we're able to, um, you know, have like there was a bunch of um, Republican college women at UND who attended a Ready to the Run. It was very successful. So I like the cross-pollination that Christy, our executive director, has started. Um, and I think it's really necessary to the future of anything going well. But yeah, I, guys, I'm so exhausted by the lack of infrastructure. It makes me want to do anything but electoral, or at least candidate electoral politics. Like it, it sends me like, running in the other direction ballot measures are at least somewhat safer because i feel like that i don't know that kind of energy is more collective than something revolving a candidate if you don't have the 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 infrastructure you've got to be have a person a certain personality where you know that it's lost cause but you're just there to use a bully pulpit and there there are people that can do that but even amongst that crowd, half of them get get frazzled and 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 walk away afterwards. The other half run for everything they can, and it becomes just part of their lifestyle. So, <laughs> um, you know, you, you get the pro and the problem there is then you if you do it too much, then you you become a a, a gadfly, and and everybody compares you to Roland Reimers and Dwayne Hendrickson. <laughs> Yeah. And I, you know, I think I could do a better job of running as a lost cause with an important thing to say and, and to bring attention to an issue. I think I could do that, but I would just need to commit to that from the beginning. Mm -hmm. I can't be doing this. Oh, I'm running to win. Oh, I'm not anymore. You know, like that's just very confusing. Right. And, and, you know, when you're trying to actually earn people's votes really deliberately, you have to put yourself in situations that can be very painful at times and if you're actually not really running to win, you're you're running to have good conversations and raise attention to issues. 
then you actually don't have to scrounge for votes so desperately that you put yourself in emotionally unsafe situations. So I do think that there is an upside to that issue a focus, mm-hmm. not going to win campaign. Um, so I want to think about doing that someday. Uh, not anytime soon, though. Yeah, it, it comes down to uh, and, and oddly enough, the, the, the real rationale becomes how much do you want to be the guy that a girl that said, I told you so 10 years from now? That's really what the motivation has to be if you want to be that type of candidate. Uh, you know, you've got you've got to decide <clears throat> what what you are about, why you're doing it, and <clears throat> if you're certain that uh, eventually people will see it your way, then you know at some point they will, and and then your ability to influence grows because you were the pioneer blazing the trail. You know, it's like on all, all, all this city stuff in, in Bismarck. You know, I was going after the Renaissance Zone for 10 years before I got appointed to it. So eventually things catch up and the world catches up to people who uh, have figured out what's wrong. But, you know, it, it's a slow and painful process. And not everybody has a psychological wherewithal to deal, deal with that over and over and over and you know slamming your head against the wall for 10 years is not a fun game yeah yeah and i think well taking breaks i think would be important for someone like me it's like i i can do that on occasion i think um if you like i i do think that my uh ability to complete my phd at u chicago in five years does demonstrate a level of stubbornness that i can like weather some really crappy stuff but i have to i'd like to know what i'm getting myself into and uh, 10 years straight i don't think i could do that i think i would need to break it up now and again so i we have to all know our limits and um that's not i mean that's a thing that's not really frankly discussed either i think that this pipeline discussion is is important but like it's also scratching beneath the surface and asking what that pipeline really is and it's not just the conventional stuff you need to have people in your life who tell you like what your actual shot like your likelihood of winning is and then help you decide working backwards from there you know what does that mean what kind of campaign do you want to run i mean people who believe they have a shot when they don't and people enablers kind of like let them think that i know they don't want the person to lose steam but like I don't know that it's helpful to, for a person who's going to have to actually live with the consequences of the entire uh, fiasco or whatever. So I think a more frank discussion about this and helping people with deliberate intention, like review the issues they care about, strategically select them. And, you know, that deliberateness, I think, is something people deserve an opportunity to engage in. And I think burnout might be less severe if people actually knew what they were getting themselves into. Yeah, yeah and, that very well. And and oh, people sorry. like to lie to themselves as well. <laughs> and you can't really overcome that either. <laughs> right. Well, then that's why it's so important to have someone to 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 reflect what, you know, reality to back to you as a part of the pipeline. So I think what you're describing Ellie is what happens when no one wants to run and then you have a bunch of people who want someone to run and so they go around telling other people that they should run and then they over exaggerate their ability to actually win because they really want someone to run. And so it becomes this self-referential, um, you know, fib. 
that each person is believing it for different reasons, but everyone knows it's not true. It's, but it's just to get someone to run. And if there was a way to be like, okay, well, you, do you want to run? Do you, do you feel like you have a purpose? Okay, good. Let's assess your strengths and weaknesses. Let's assess the, uh, the, the contest, the, the political atmosphere, all that stuff, you know, and, and have a frank discussion and be like, well, you got to get better at public speaking. You need to maybe dress a little better. Um, you know, start padding your resume in this or that spot. So when this subject comes up, you have some gravitas behind what you're saying and, uh, you know, attack it very analytically versus, you know, kind of wish fulfillment. Like, you, know, you should really run and you have a really good chance because uh, we really need somebody in this point. No one's stepping up. Because, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, well, I'm rather at the hour mark, so I think it might be a good time to check out. Um, I had one question for you, Ellie, and, and then one kind of comment from um, something I went to last night. So I, I, my question for you, and I'll let, let you get to it in your checkout if if, it, if you're so moved. Um, but this idea of putting yourself in emotionally um, scary or emotionally unstable conversations um, as a part of running your campaign, uh, I'd love for you to describe more of what's, what that was like and why you felt um, it was necessary as a part of your campaign. Um, because I, I feel like if I were to run for a campaign, I would um, just say yes to everything just in the name of getting votes. And, um, and yeah, that's scary. <laughs> that would be scary. Uh, so I, I would be great if you could just talk a little bit more about what that was like. Um, and then for, for me last night, I went to, um, a global neighbors ceremony dinner thing at McCabe church. And it was uh, a graduation for immigrants that had gone through the global neighbors leadership program. And so it was six, um, graduates. And so it was a nice dinner and they, they, they each had speeches and they kind of talked to, talked us through their program. And that was a really great program. And what um, the thought I had during the, during this um, is basically just a, um, a witness to it is that um, there are several people that went through the program or that were in attendance that were immigrants that would make great candidates in Bismarck or in North Dakota in our political ecosystem. And uh, and they, what they had in common was they had a, a kind of an entrepreneurial spirit. So they were people that were starting businesses, um, you know, just to get them, pull themselves up um, from you know coming to a new country and having to start over, basically at ground zero. Some people were doctors when they came to this country, and then our country said, "Well, your degree, we're not, we don't recognize your degree in our country, so you gotta you gotta go get your GED now." And you're you're a doctor in your in your country, but now you got to you got to go to do the GED and start from the bottom. And so you know they had to work 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 work, and so they started their own businesses to kind of you know jumpstart that process. And so it was a lot of entrepreneurs and it was a lot of extroverts. And so I think those two characteristics resonate well with um, with the North Dakota and Bismarck um, political ecosystem on both sides, not just. Uh, Republican or not just Democrat, but also Republican. And so these are brown and black people that I thought um, could make real connections with the conservative voters of Bismarck and North Dakota, just based on their life story and the way they've, uh, you know, had to, to change their lives to come to this country and, and succeed. And um, so this program helped them become leaders, you know, leadership training. And um, to me, it seemed like there's a lot of potential political candidates out of this group, this cohort as well. Um, and I actually told someone to run. I told him you should just run because he was complaining about some uh, regulation uh, here in, that prevented him from doing what he wanted to do. I was like, well, you should just run run for office because uh, he's like, I need to talk to the person in charge. 
And I was like, well, good luck with that, but maybe you should just run. And uh, if we're talking about a pipeline, the immigrant community in Bismarck, which is really bustling now, would be a great place to start um, developing these uh, candidates because they, uh, you know, the immigrant experience forces you to talk to a lot of people um, and, and, and listen and understand. And uh, so it, it makes a great, um, and especially in Bismarck, I think we could have in, immigrant candidates that would um, resonate across both party lines. So it would be an interesting political experiment as well. So just throwing that out there, I don't know where it's going to go from, but I just ha I had the thought as I was listening to their stories that these would make some great candidates here in North Dakota. So with that, I'll swing it over to Dustin or Ellie for some checkout thoughts. Well, you did have a question for me. Um, That's right. Yeah. Yes. Um, but I want to say I, you know, I like what you're thinking. And I think some of those people can actually be some of the best. I mean, they're, they're not heavily resourced, so they're probably not going to win. But there's an issue they're passionate about. And they are they also know what it's like to take some L's. I mean, it's hard. <laughs> it's hard being an immigrant or a refugee like. And so they, I think, are a little bit they're a little resilient in some ways where running and losing isn't like a big deal. The run, the running is such an amazing thing to step up to do that. And there's no entitlement about, um, you know, I must win. And so I think some of those people can be great candidates um, just because their life experiences have made them um, open, resilient and, and such. And I think if you ever meet someone who you really think is open to that, like send them to, send them to me, send them to the nonpartisan league and I would love to tell them how not to blow it and get too associated with the Democratic <laughs> Party to be successful, right? So these are people who, if they want to court conservative votes, they have to, they can't be holding leadership positions in the Democratic Party. So, um, but also giving them some ideas out how to court um, some Republican voters, like going to district meetings and introducing themselves. And, you know, just, just being a good ambassador for their vision um, across both sides without, you know, committing too much one way or another on issues that are just not relevant to the position. So I'd love to mentor people like that. I know Jenna Van Horn would be really supportive of that. Um, so anyways, we would like to build a pipeline for people who lack other pipelines and being connected to other resources like the Women's Network is helpful. Um, but yeah, to answer your question, I, 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 mean, I mean this, I don't mean this disrespectfully. I, I try to, I'm trying to be constructive here. Um, I do think it's hard for um, an educated, um, well articulate, um, you know, middle-class tall white guy to really understand how threatening some of these interactions can be. Um, when you're on the campaign, excuse me, campaign trail as either a woman, a queer person, a person of color, a disabled person. Basically, if you have something about you that uh, is a source of marginalization, and if there are people who hate you, even just in a low key way, simply because you belong to a particular social group, like it's really hard. Like people will take out their contempt for themselves, like most people, you know, like someone who's a misogynist, they have contempt for themselves. Like if you hate women, you've definitely got some issues within yourself um, because that's a ridiculous overgeneralization. And, and so anyways, I know anybody who shows hatred towards me because of my gender is really a self-hating loser. 
but it still is scary. Like these people can still be really frightening. Um, and it's not that I'm saying I'm thinking people are about to like kidnap me or beat me or something. I mean, I don't think that that's likely, but it's because it's always possible that someone will take something to physical aggression. You just never know the uncertainty itself and the high stakes nature of it. Um, just emotionally abusive behavior can be scary because it can imply the potential of physically abusive behavior. And emotionally abusive behavior is still also abuse. So it's still really difficult. And um, you know, if there's a big difference between knowing that there are men on the internet who are mad at you, or like if you're a person of color and white people on the internet are mad at you, and you don't really spend time reading the comments, you just move on, move on with your life, like that's different from um, having to engage directly with those people. And when you do engage directly with those people, it's not always terrible. You know, sometimes it is an opportunity to clarify your stance or for you guys to discuss the thing that they're upset about. And they, there can be an opportunity for a little bit of growth there, but like, it's like, let's say like it's in thirds, third of third of people like this you encounter, there could be some growth there. A third, it just stays the same. The other third, it just makes your life worse. Um, and well, I, that makes it even sound like it's balanced out. I think the ones where it just stays the same is still really negative. So it's not balanced out. Like there's a lot of negativity there for very, uh, for not a lot of gains. And the gains may be real, may be important, and they're not necessarily gonna earn you votes per se, but they may open people's minds to the issue you're discussing. But, um, and I have to tell you that women have a sense of this. I'm sure people of color have their own sense of this. They, they definitely do. Like we know when somebody's treating us a certain way because of our gender. We get accused of seeing things that aren't really there all the time, but we are seeing things that are there. So I know when I'm being treated a certain way because of my gender. And I experienced this sort of, there's this exchange rate of racism, racism and misogyny, excuse me, um, where like, as a white woman talking about race issues, I actually received a lot of what I considered to be ultimately racism, but it was translated into misogyny and directed at me. And um, it's really painful and difficult. And a thing about these immigrants running is people really have to have their back. I mean, you cannot ask a foreign, born, you know, person of African descent, foreign born to just run for office and not really be there for them when they encounter racism, because it's going to happen and it's going to be really painful sometimes. And anyone pretending that's not going to happen is really kind of selling out the person. And um, it's just now a lot of people will know better. They'll know to expect some of it. And I'm sure also there'll be lots of pleasant experiences where uh, there was a sort of transcendental exchange that, you know, where people really saw each other instead of it as each other's races. I'm sure that happens too, but um, it, when you belong to a group that is hated um, as a sort of scapegoat, things are really scary sometimes. And when you align yourself with other scapegoats, you know, things get even scarier. And um, I just think that this is what I had to really express to my board of the Women's Network, that we have to get real about this stuff and really help provide people some support because how is anybody supposed to run for office in this climate if, if they don't have that kind of support? That's that's what I'm concerned about. Yeah, uh, great, great 
points, Ellie, and, and point taken on the white manness. Because uh, when you were talking about that, um, I was reminded back to when we met uh, on your front steps uh, to hand out flyers for your campaign, and Catherine was talking about the buddy system and uh, you know ultimate safety with uh, flyering neighborhoods. And uh, and then I and then I was thinking to myself when she was saying that I was like I'll just walk up to their door and knock on it you know <laughs> uh, so as a as a white man I feel very comfortable just walking up to any anyone's house and knocking on the door um, or putting a flyer up there and uh, if they come up and ma- and they're mad I'll I'll apologize and you know talk my way out of it and I feel like you know that's the white that's part of the white <laughs> white man privilege is that you can talk yourself out of all kinds of, of scary situations. And you're given the benefit of the doubt pretty much in all those situations. So you can, uh, you know, whether it's the police um, or going to court or whatever, whatever situation you find yourself in, if you can talk decent, uh, you can usually get out, get out of it and escape danger. And uh, for other other people, that's not the case. And so, yes, point taken on um, just not. And, and again, I can intellectually understand what you're saying, but uh, the experiential data is lacking in my instance. So. When I fly or something, I'll just walk up to their door and put it up there. Because um, for me, I'm, I'm, those circumstances do not pertain. However, you're absolutely correct that if you're going to create a pipeline, you need to make make those uh, potential dangers part of the introduction process to to running as a candidate. Because um, yeah, you you feel those things, and they are real, even as much as people want to minimize them or marginalize them. They're there, and um, you, it's a part of your everyday existence to the extent that I can't imagine as a white male. So um, just recognizing that as you um, talk to people who run are potentially going to run for candidates, candidacy and make that a part of their experience and, and, and their preparation. Um, so for like the immigrant experience, they've already felt that, you know, to, to an, an another you know, dimension almost coming to a new culture on top of, um, potential racism or sexism or misogyny. Uh, there's a whole other culture, country, language barrier, all kinds of other um, things to make them feel uh, othered and marginalized. And so they've got a they've got a real good toolkit <laughs> at this point dealing with that stuff. So they they may be more resilient. Like you're talking about more resilience in the face of um, potential defeat. And I also wanted to have a, a shout out to the potential connections you can make with somebody. So we've had a lot of talk about race in the country over the last 18 months now. And, uh, you know, even for the conservatives, let's say the conservatives that feel like they're being called racist for no good reason um, and push back on that and think that, um, you know, their, their experience racism, actually not that they're racist, but they're being targeted by racism. That's their perspective. Um, even those people want to feel a connection with someone of a different color, race, um, culture. And so the opportunity with an immigrant candidate is to find this ideological synchronicity uh, with somebody of a different color. And so it makes, you know, it creates this ex- experience potentially where you're like, oh, we believe in the same things, um, um, but we're, we look way different. We come from way different cultures. You come from across the planet. Oh, isn't this awesome? And, it, and it's those experiences, whether that's a door-to-door interaction or at a campaign um, stop, it's those experiences that actually help people um, 
become more comfortable with immigrants and, and races and stuff like that. And it's the experiences that we lack as North Dakotans because we're, we're overwhelmingly white um, and Christian that um, we, it's the lack of experiences that help uh, that, that's kind of explain some of the ways in which we are. And so if we can create the experiences then over, you know, 20, 30 years, then we, the culture changes accordingly. And so it's a great way to do that as well. Um, but yeah, um, and I, I think, um, and the reason I asked you, Ellie, to, to talk more about the, the, that experience is because obviously me and Dustin aren't going to talk too much about it, um, but it's important to get it out there too, because um, uh, the act of talking about it on a podcast or wherever um, helps people like me and Dustin uh, and other people that just don't think about that because it's not part of their daily experience, but um, it's out there. It's in the world. You just can't perceive it because of um, you know who you are necessarily sometimes um based on your background and upbringing so thank you for that um i want to kick it over to dustin here dustin how's your checkout thought um well you know what what's funny is that uh one person in particular comes to mind um who next to my storage unit he runs a um uh church he's of african descent i'm not sure which country he's from but he's as trumpy as anybody i've ever met and he'd, he'd make a great candidate for something <laughs> and and yeah you know, in my experience uh immigrants from third world countries tend to lean conservative because they're used to believing their government was bad you know that their right. government mistreated them and so and an immigrant that is an entrepreneur from a country where the government mistreated them are very uh, are going to be very easily brought over to the conservative libertarian side of thinking. And, uh, you know, those folks are are uh, are used used to being in a situation where speaking up gets them killed. And so here that's not the case. So obviously they're going to have a lot thicker skin than you know some of us white folk <laughs> yeah no that's a great point um uh they tend they tend to have a very um, strong libertarian streak i've noticed as well and it's based on their relationship to governance um or to the state and it really brings it out in them and when they and when they come to this country and it's a little bit different um they 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 a lot of the libertarian or some of the conservative talking points really resonate with what their experience has been in their life. And so it's a great, um, it's a great way for the conservative movement to kind of expand its base. Um, and I would love to see um, some, some of those candidates run as well. Cause I think it does, it does open up the, uh, the expansive imagination of what's out there in the world and, and kind of gets us past some of our stereotypes. I do kind of think that does depend upon how much they have been exposed to ideological American exceptionalism. I think there are some immigrants who, even if their government treated them very badly, they heard that the U.S. is pretty sweet. And like the, they heard about it in a way that uh, made our institutions sound better. So I do think there's some immigrants that have a lot of optimism in the government here and i would actually i i did some some scholarship on this concept that i kind of put together from different literatures of compensatory trusts there really is a thing where people under threat sometimes uh 
are motivated um, to have some feelings that kind of compensate for that sense of threat. And in some instances, that results in greater trust in institutions um, to compensate for their lack of sense of safety and predictability and trust with either other institutions or something else going on in their lives. So it's, I think that it kind of depends on a couple other details, uh, if that's the direction they lean or if they're uh, quite trusting in our government and perhaps they even could contrast theirs and ours. I think maybe it depends a little bit too on whether or not they think of uh, the state as like a general concept that's like around the globe and these are just different permutations of it, you know, or they, they think of individual governments as like truly separate experiments or something. Um, Cause yeah, I've just seen variety in how people are in immigrants feel in this way, but I do know what you guys are talking about. Yeah, and I wonder if it's um, a product of where in the world they come from. I feel like the Latin American um, immigrants are typically, uh, from my experience, and I guess what I've seen from the demographics, um, from some of the voting in the last presidential election, more drawn to conservative principles uh, when they come to this country. I'm thinking about like the Latino men for Trump, um, which I forget the percentage, but was very high. And um well, and maybe I, it's the Latin American experience, American experience with um, corrupt government practices that is, is um, kind of primed them for that. That's the true, ideology. but you, you got to look at the different nations of origin, like Cubans right. versus Mexicans, huge difference. Mm -hmm. Right. The, the, uh, on that video from that Peter Zion, uh, he, he talks about this, how, how first generation immigrants, uh, of Latino descent tend to be Democrat, but second and third generation tend to be more conservative and how, uh, that the, the desire of Democrats to have more Latino immigration to boost their numbers now is ultimately going to backfire on them two and three generations down the road. I only think well, the most cynical people, though, actually are like, yeah, cool. Let's have the immigrant, let's have Mexican immigrants come so that they can vote Democrat. Like that's that like most people I know, they wouldn't dream. They wouldn't dream of thinking that way. And they're actually just focused on honest representation and think that, you know, um, that's a working class group of people who gets it on working class issues or something like that. But, yeah, I'm sure that there are uh, really cynical Dems who just look at this like you know what I mean the machine mm -hmm. politics people for sure I believe that they think that way <laughs> which is also why you know the number one ally for uh for the anti-immigration uh Republicans is a lot of times the unions because it's a challenge to their uh labor force and because the low-income labor uh undercuts their ability to get their people those jobs. And so there, it, it creates a lot of these weird dynamics. True. I, yeah, I was just thinking about that a little bit the other day.